Greetings, everyone. After Jesus died and was resurrected, according to the testimony of John on the first afternoon, following his resurrection, Jesus appeared to his close disciples, including the 11 who were to be sent out as apostles. We read in John 20, beginning verse 19, John 20 and verse 19, then the same day at evening, this is the same day of Jesus' resurrection, and remember that as the Jews count days and as the biblical calendar counts days, days begin at sunset, and so Jesus was resurrected at sunset just at the close of the Sabbath or the beginning of the first day of the week. And then the same day at evening or afternoon, as it could be translated, the following afternoon being the first day of the week, when the doors were shut where the disciples were assembled for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood in the midst and said to them, Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. However, when Jesus appeared in the room where they were gathered, as we just read, one of the eleven was absent. And so we continue with verse 24 of John 20. Verse 24, Now Thomas, called the twin, one of the twelve, was not with them when Jesus came. The other disciples therefore said to him, We have seen the Lord. So he said to them, Unless I see in his hands the print of the nails and put my finger into the print of the nails and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. And after eight days, his disciples were again inside and Thomas with them. Jesus came, the doors being shut and stood in the midst and said, Peace be to you. Then he said to Thomas, Reach your finger here and look at my hands and reach your hand there and put it into my side. Do not be unbelieving, but believing. And Thomas answered and said to him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Thomas, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Now Thomas, understandably, was skeptical that Jesus was alive because he had known of Jesus' crucifixion. Perhaps he even witnessed it. At least he certainly knew about it. And he was skeptical that someone that had died several days before would suddenly be alive, especially someone who was murdered, killed in the manner that Jesus Christ had been. Now, some have assumed from this example that believing in Christ without evidence is praiseworthy. That we should not expect to have to see any evidence concerning Christ. We just need to believe whatever we're told about him, the testimony that others may say about him. The question is, though, is that what God wants us to do? Should we believe just blindly whatever we're told about Jesus Christ or any other subject. Does God want us to have blind faith or faith without evidence? Now in the New Testament are some very strong claims concerning Jesus Christ. It's claimed that he was born of a virgin, 
that he worked many miracles, that he died by crucifixion and was resurrected three days later, that he has the authority to forgive sins and thus to remove their penalty, and that he was God in the flesh. Those are some of the things that are claimed about Jesus Christ. Thomas saw Jesus. He had been with Jesus much of the time during the three and a half years of Jesus' ministry. He had been among those who were personally taught by Jesus as he was being trained to become an apostle. And he was an eyewitness to testify of Jesus and his teachings. That's why he was being trained as an apostle. He knew that Jesus had died and he knew how he had died. And he saw him alive several days after he had been dead and buried in a tomb. So Thomas knew a lot about Jesus and he had seen Jesus. He had seen him alive. He had seen him dead or at least knew that he was dead without any doubt. And he saw him alive again a short time later. But none of us has seen Jesus. None of us has seen Jesus. If we are to believe, if we're to have faith in Jesus, if we are in this lifetime to believe in Jesus' resurrection and in his promises, we will have to believe without having seen Jesus. We will not have the advantages that people like Thomas have in having witnessed the things that he witnessed firsthand. But does that mean that we must have blind faith? Does that mean that we must have blind faith? In this sermon, I want to show you that God does not want you to believe in him simply by blind faith. That is faith with no supporting evidence. That's our definition of blind faith. Faith, believing something with no supporting evidence. And I'm going to show you that that is not what God requires or expects of you that our faith ought to be based on evidence. But if our faith is to be based on evidence, what is the evidence? What is the evidence that our faith ought to be based on? If the main evidence supporting faith in Jesus Christ is in the Bible, how does the Bible measure up as a reliable history concerning Jesus Christ? And this is a question I also want to address in today's sermon. The fact is, I repeat, God does not require nor does he want us to believe in Jesus Christ without evidence. Just after John records the statement we read earlier that Jesus made to Thomas is the following in verse 30 of John 20. Truly, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. Now, this was between the time of Jesus' resurrection and the time that he ascended to heaven 40 days later, and he did many other signs in the presence of his disciples. Why would he be doing those signs? They were additional evidence that he was who he said he was and whom they believed he was. There was, there was additional proof, more evidence to back up the claims of Jesus Christ and let them know 
without a doubt who he was and what he was. So we see that Jesus offered many signs, many proofs to his disciples concerning the claims that he made about himself and who he was. He never asked his disciples to have blind faith in him. He never asked them to have faith without evidence. He provided all kinds of evidence. Now Luke wrote in the book of Acts, beginning with verse 1 of Acts 1, Acts 1 and verse 1, he said, The former account I made, O Theophilus, and Theophilus is a Greek word which means lover of God, and so that would, uh, whether this was written to an actual person named Theophilus or just written to an audience of people who love God is something that's been debated, but in any case, it applies to us, applies to anyone who wants to find out about what Luke is writing about in the book of Acts. And he says, The former account I made, O Theophilus, of all that Jesus began both to do and teach. This is speaking here of his gospel account, the, the gospel according to Luke, as it's often called. He said, The former account I made, O Theophilus, of all that Jesus began both to do and teach until the day in which he was taken up after he through the Holy Spirit had given commandments to the apostles whom he had chosen to whom he also presented himself alive after his suffering by many infallible proofs being seen by them during 40 days and speaking of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God. So notice again, we see that he presented himself alive to them and gave them many infallible proofs concerning his identity. Now, if Jesus did not expect those people to believe in him, to have faith in him without proof, without evidence, why would he require us to believe without evidence? He doesn't. In John 20 and verse 31, John 20 and verse 31, John went on to say, but these are written, that is the things that he is writing down in his message, his gospel account, these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. So, John said the reason he was writing all of these things down was so that you may believe, whoever reads the account, that you may believe. Now, God has given us a lot of proof, a lot of evidence about himself in the things that God has made in his creation is powerful testimony to his, his existence and power. For example, we read in Romans 1, beginning with verse 19. Romans 1 and verse 19, what may be known of God is manifest in them, that is mankind, or a better translation would be is revealed to them. For God has shown it to them, for since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen being understood by the things that are made, 
even his eternal power and Godhead so that they are without excuse. The things that God has made testify to the fact that he exists and also testify to his wisdom and power. The information necessary to construct the tiniest living organisms with their array of intricate biological machines of irreducible complexity is enormous. It would take many encyclopedia volumes to contain the same amount of information as in the tiniest living cell. There's no way such creatures could exist except through the design of a superior intellect. Sometimes the term simple organisms is used of certain forms of life, but there are in fact no simple biological life forms on earth. In discussing the complexity of even the least complex of organisms, in their book Evolution from Space, highly accomplished scientists Fred Hoyle and Chandra Ramasinghe conclude, quote, the probability of life originating at random is so utterly minuscule as to make the random concept absurd. They also say in the same book, for life to have originated on the earth, it would be necessary that quite explicit instructions should have been provided for its assembly. They also say the theory that life was assembled by an intelligence is vastly more probable than the alternative of being the correct explanation. Indeed, such a theory is so obvious, they say, that one wonders why it is not widely accepted as being self-evident. The reasons are psychological rather than scientific. These are two of the most... Many other scientists, as well as many informed individuals who have no formal scientific credentials, have come to a similar conclusion. A few examples include Dr. Edward Luther Kessel, zoologist and entomologist, professor and chairman of the Department of Biology at the University of San Francisco. He wrote, and I'm quoting here, the more I study nature, the more I am impressed with evidences of design in nature. The processes and phenomena which we observe in science are indeed manifestations of a supreme intelligence. End quote. And this is from an article he wrote called Let's Look at, F at Facts Without Bent or Bias in a book titled The Evidence of God in an Expanding Universe. Dr. Marlon Books Kreider, physiologist employed by the U.S. government and a professor of biology at Eastern Nazarene College, wrote, quote, Our scientific knowledge reveals so many improbabilities in the completely materialistic explanation that it is more rational to accept as the prime cause a form of special creation and the influence of an outside force, end quote. That's from an article in the same volume titled Identifying Einstein's Creative Force. Dr. Russell Charles Artist, biologist, and botanist, a professor in Germany at Frankfurt on the Main, and then professor and head of the Department of Biology at David Lipscomb University in Tennessee, adds, quote, 
It cannot be demonstrated successfully that such a precision instrument as a watch came to exist by accident, that is, without the mind and hand of the craftsman, nor that even in the self-winding type it began without someone setting it in motion. When we ask concerning the living cell, how did this microscopic but amazing functional unit come to have its present form, or how was it set in motion, we are confronted with formidable, even insuperable difficulties in trying to account for its beginning, and for that matter its continued functioning, unless we maintain with reason and logic that an intelligence, a mind, brought it into existence. This mind, this supreme intelligence, as contrasted with unthinking matter, is God, end quote. That's from an article from the same volume titled Trillions of Living Cells Speak Their Message. There are many ways in which God has left evidence of his power, wisdom, and Godhead in the things he has created, but he has also left a written record of his creative acts and of his communications with human beings and interventions in the affairs of this world. That record is preserved in the scriptures of the Bible. Peter wrote in 2 Peter chapter 1, beginning verse 16, 2 Peter 1 and verse 16, For we did not follow cunningly devised fables when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For he received from God the Father honor and glory when such a voice came to him from the excellent glory, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And we heard this voice which came from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. And so we have the prophetic word confirmed which you do well to heed is a light that shines in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts knowing this first, that no prophecy of Scripture is of any private interpretation. For prophecy never came by the will of man, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. So Peter tells us that the record, the, the accounts that he and others propagated were eyewitness accounts, things that they had witnessed and they were passing that information on to us as eyewitnesses. Now, the written testimony of eyewitnesses is an important part of the evidence available to support our faith. And eyewitness accounts are a valid form of evidence. Eyewitness accounts that stand up to challenges are a major, if not the major, element in our system of justice and the system of justice in, in general for mankind. If you have several independent eyewitnesses, two or more according to Scripture, a person can be convicted of a crime based on independent testimony that can stand up to reasonable challenges. Eyewitness testimony is the primary evidence that we have available that identifies the Creator. Now, we, we have evidence from nature 
from what we observe in God's creation that there is, in fact, a creator. But just knowing that there is a creator doesn't give us a lot of information other than the fact that there is a creator. And you might conclude that he is, in many ways, a benevolent creator. But to have more detailed information to identify who this creator is, we need to have more information. And the primary evidence that identifies the creator, that gives us detailed information about his plan and his purpose for human beings is eyewitness testimony or testimony that has been written down by people who were familiar with God. And that testimony tells us not only who created us, but it tells us why we were created and how his purpose, God's purpose, is being worked out with regard to human beings from a historical and prophetic standpoint. And that record, that testimony is in the Bible. The record written for our learning, for our instruction and edification is mentioned by Luke in his introduction to his gospel account the New Testament portion of it, or at least certainly his particular contribution to the New Testament, he wrote in Luke 1, beginning with verse 1, Inasmuch as many have taken in hand to set in order a narrative of those things which have been fulfilled among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also having had perfect understanding of all things from the very first to write to you an orderly account, most excellent Theophilus, that you may know the certainty of those things in which you were instructed. Notice that the reason Luke sets out to write his account, which is delivered through eyewitness testimony, he wasn't the, the eyewitness himself, but he was instructed by eyewitnesses. He was told the things that he was communicating. He was told those things by eyewitnesses whom he knew. And he was writing this eyewitness account so that we might know the certainty of the things in which we were instructed. He's speaking, writing to people who were in the church, actually. That's who he had in mind primarily, although this information is available to anybody who wants it, wants to read it. But it was eyewitness testimony. And he said that his goal was to write down an orderly account. It is an account that is more ordered in arrangement of chronological sequence and so forth than some of the other accounts. The scriptures left by the prophets and later by the apostles and their close associates are intended to be the authoritative source of our beliefs. They are intended to be the foundation on which our faith is based. And it is by and large testimony that comes from eyewitness accounts of things that occurred things that 
were done, things that God said or revealed. And so the, this testimony is given to us. You might compare it, for example, to a court record, a court trial where witnesses give their accounts and these accounts are recorded. And then you can read later what was said and how it was verified so that you can have an idea of what happened in the courtroom. Jesus said in Matthew 7, beginning in verse 24, Matthew 7 and verse 24, Therefore, whoever hears these sayings of mine and does them, I will liken him to a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain descended, the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on that house, and it did not fall, for it was founded on the rock. Now notice what Jesus is saying here. He's comparing his sayings to a rock, a foundation rock, like a massive boulder that one might use as a foundation for a house. But everyone who hears these sayings of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand and the rain descended, the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house and it fell and great was its fall. And so it was when Jesus had ended these sayings that the people were astonished at his teaching for he taught them as one having authority and not as the scribes. That's in Matthew 7, beginning at verse 24, Matthew 7 and verse 24 through 29. So the teachings of Jesus are to be the rock, the foundation on which we build our house, our lives, our faith. John 8, verse 31, John 8, verse 31, Jesus said to those Jews who believed him, if you abide in my word, you are my disciples indeed, and you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. How are we to know what were the sayings of Jesus? How are we to know what his word is? The way that we know what his sayings were, the way that we know what his word is, is because they are recorded in the New Testament scriptures. The entire New Testament, for that matter, and the Old Testament are together the inspired word of God. All of them are God's word, as Peter assured us, as we read earlier. Now, we should not just accept without question whatever men may tell us. And that includes men who claim to be God's ministers. All too often, men claiming to be ministers of God lie about what God's word teaches. We're not to just accept what men tell us about God's word or what it supposedly means or what Jesus expects of us. We're to go to the source. Paul praised the Bereans, the people in Berea, because they sought to prove what they were being taught by searching the scriptures. Their view evidently was that the foundation of their faith was the scriptures. And so if they were going to be told about God, they needed to go to the scriptures that they believed were reliable in being God's message to mankind, that they were authoritative. And so they were going to go to the ultimate authority that they had available, the scriptures. 
And so we read in Acts 17, verse 11, Acts 17, verse 11, these were more fair-minded than those in Thessalonica in that they received the word with all readiness. Yes, they weren't closed-minded to the teachings of what the apostles were telling them. They were open to being taught, but they weren't going to just blindly accept whatever they were told. It says they searched the scriptures daily to find out whether these things were so, whether the things they were being told stood up to the test of being compared with Scripture. And so they searched the Scriptures to confirm the truth of the teachings that they were being given. Paul admonishes us in 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 21, 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 21, test all things or approve all things, hold fast what is good, Prove all things, hold fast what is good. So when we're, this could apply in many different situations, but it certainly applies in terms of testing what you're told about God. You should prove all things and hold fast what you can prove from the scriptures. John warned, in 1 John 4 and verse 1, John, 1 John 4 and verse 1, Beloved, do not believe every spirit. Do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits whether they are of God. Because many false prophets have gone out into the world. Many false prophets. And the test of truth is conformity with the word of God, the testimony of the prophets and apostles whose teachings are recorded in the Old and New Testaments. As we read in Isaiah chapter 8 and verse 20, Isaiah 8 and verse 20, to the law and to the testimony, if they do not speak according to this word, it is because there is no light in them. If what you are being told is at odds with the testimony of Scripture, then... It is because those who are teaching have no light in them. That is, they are false. They're giving you a false testimony. They're teaching falsehoods. Paul admonished Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 3, beginning verse 13, 2 Timothy 3 and verse 13. Paul told Timothy, he said, evil men and impostors will grow worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived. But you must continue in the things which you have learned and been assured of, knowing from whom you have learned them. He said, you must continue in the things which you have learned and been assured of, knowing from whom you have learned them. Now, what's he talking about? What was it that he had learned? Well, it goes on to say, from childhood you have known the Holy Scriptures. That's where he learned the things that he was to continue in. From childhood you've known the Holy Scriptures which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. 
So we see that the foundation of our faith, the source of instruction to which we are to go and in which we are to continue as far as its teachings are concerned are the scriptures. And it is these scriptures that we are to rely on for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, and for instruction in righteousness. Paul also instructed Timothy, and this is a warning for us as well, in 2 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 1, 2 Timothy 4 and verse 1, he said to Timothy, I charge you therefore before God and the Lord Jesus Christ, who will judge the living and the dead at his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word. Now, Timothy was a minister. He'd been trained and ordained by Paul as a minister. Paul supervised his work and he was instructing Timothy here, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Convince, rebuke, exhort with all longsuffering and teaching for the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but according to their own desires, because they have itching ears, they will heap up for themselves teachers and they will turn their ears away from the truth and be turned aside to fables. But you be watchful in all things, endure afflictions, do the work of an evangelist. So Timothy was an evangelist, a minister whose job was to teach and evangelize, to preach the gospel, the word of God. And so we see that the job of a faithful minister is to preach the word, the word of God. And he is to endeavor to convince his hearers. It said convince, endeavor to convince your hearers. Now, how do you convince somebody? of something if you want to convince somebody of something wouldn't you likely want to offer him proof evidence the hearers are to be convinced they're not just to willy-nilly accept whatever is said in fact paul warns against that he's talking about people will teach fables falsehoods things they just make up and a true minister a faithful minister is to be a teacher teaching sound doctrine even though it may be rejected in favor, favor of fables or false doctrines. There's only so much the teacher can control. Basically, he can control what he teaches. He can't necessarily control what people do with it, whether they reject it or accept it. But what he can do is he can endeavor to convince people by offering proof. Now, if you are to be convinced of the truth, you must have your mind engaged. You can't very well be convinced of something if you don't have your own mind engaged in what is being discussed. You must be seeking to confirm the truth of what you are told, either to confirm the truth or discover that it's not valid. If it's the truth, then you must be seeking to confirm the truth of what you are told and to do that effectively, you must be studying the Bible carefully and weighing what you are taught if you are not to be deceived. So you examine what you're told in light of the Scriptures. Now we get to the question, how trustworthy are the Scriptures? And especially in, for the purpose of this sermon, the Scriptures of the New Testament. How do we know 
that they are a reliable record of Jesus Christ. How do we know that they reliable, reliably tell us who Christ was, who, what he did, and what he taught? First of all, let's take a look at the authors. Who was it that wrote the books of the New Testament, and when were they written? Those are two questions that we could begin with. And the answer is that every one of the books of the New Testament was written by an apostle or by a minister closely associated with one of the apostles in the first century church. These were apostles were men who knew Jesus Christ intimately. They had been with Christ. They had seen Christ. They were taught directly by Jesus Christ. And that includes Paul, by the way, who was not converted until after Jesus had died and was resurrected. But Paul also was taught directly as he testifies by Jesus Christ. And after his training and teaching, which, which occupied several years, evidently, of his life, after his conversion, he went to the other apostles to compare notes with them to make sure that he was on the same page as they were, that he was teaching the same message, that what he said was consistent with what they were teaching. And they accepted him into the ministry as an apostle, having been taught by Jesus Christ. Matthew, who wrote the book of Matthew, the Gospel of Matthew is one of the 12 who were chosen to be an apostle by Jesus. Mark, who wrote the Gospel of Mark, was a companion of Peter and also of Paul. Luke was a close companion of Paul and spent years with Paul as his associate and who actually, it is believed, wrote some of, at least some of the epistles of Paul, not that he was the author, but he did the writing as Paul dictated. It's like he was the secretary doing the writing down of the things that Paul told him to write. John, who, who wrote the Gospel of John, was again one of Jesus' chosen apostles who had spent years with Jesus. So these were the authors of the four Gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Now here's the testimony of Irenaeus. Irenaeus was a man who lived in the second century and it's believed that this was written around 180 AD. Irenaeus had been taught by Polycarp. Polycarp was a man who had been taught personally by John, the apostle, and knew other apostles, and he had been ordained into the ministry evidently under John's supervision and been made a leader within the church during the before the ear of the apostles closed. And again, Irenaeus had known and been taught by Polycarp. In a book that he wrote called Against Heresies, in English, it was written in Greek, I believe, but in the English title would be Against Heresies. And he wrote the following, Irenaeus did. He said, Matthew also issued a gospel among the Hebrews in their own dialect, in other words, in the Hebrew language, while Peter and Paul were preaching at Rome and laying the foundations of the church, after their departure, Mark, the disciple and interpreter of Peter, did also hand down to us in writing what had been preached by Peter. 
Luke also, the companion of Paul, recorded in a book the gospel preached by him. In other words, Luke was recording what he had learned from Paul. Afterwards, John, the disciple of the Lord, who had leaned upon his breast, did himself publish a gospel during his residence in, at Ephesus in Asia. And John, in the latter part of his life, spent a number of years in Ephesus and eventually died there. Papias, another man who lived in the second century, although he's perhaps born in the first century, but only a few fragments of the writings of Papias have survived. But Papias was also a friend of Polycarp, and had, he had also evidently been taught personally by the Apostle John. And uh, Papias knew, besides John, he knew a number of people who had been acquainted with the other apostles. John was the last one to die. He died near the end of the first century. Uh, the others had died earlier. Papias, it's believed about 125 A.D., wrote the following about the Gospel of Mark. Quote, Mark, having become the interpreter of Peter, wrote down accurately whatsoever he remembered. It was not, however, in exact order that he related the sayings or, the, or deeds of Christ. Now notice the difference here between what is said about Mark's gospel and what we read about Luke. Luke said he wanted to put things in order, evidently meaning chronological order. And uh, Papias says that Mark's gospel was not written in that fashion. He simply wrote down sayings or deeds of Christ as Peter had communicated them to him. Goes on to say, Papias does, for he neither heard uh, he neither heard the Lord nor accompanied him. That's speaking of Mark. But afterwards, as I said, he accompanied Peter, who accommodated his instructions to the necessities of his hearers, but with no intention of giving a regular narrative of the Lord's sayings. Wherefore, Mark made no mistake in thus writing some things as he remembered them. For of one thing he took especial care, not to omit anything he had heard and not to put anything fictitious into the statements. Now notice that Papias said Mark was careful not to omit things or to put anything false into his statements. So as Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John wrote the four gospel accounts of the other books of the New Testament were written by Luke, Paul, John, Peter, James, and Jude. The latter two were half-brothers of Jesus. All of them lived in the first century. All of them knew Jesus Christ personally with the qualification we gave earlier about Paul who was taught by Jesus Christ after Christ had been resurrected. The accounts in the New Testament reflect the activities and teachings of Jesus Christ during his ministry and teachings and events affecting the church in the decades between Jesus' death and the death of the last of the apostles to die, who was John who died in the late 90s A.D. Now, 
The testimony of these authors is consistent throughout the New Testament. People have tried to find contradictions, contrary statements, but there aren't any contradictions that can't be adequately resolved anywhere in the New Testament. The testimony is consistent. They have the same message. And you read the same message about Christ no matter what part of the New Testament you go to. Now, some have claimed that the gospel accounts and other books of the New Testament were not written until several, several decades after Jesus died and the accounts of his life had taken on mythical accretions. For example, former nun Karen Armstrong wrote in her book, A History of God, the following. I'm quoting here from this book by a woman named Karen Armstrong. We know very little about Jesus, she says. We know very little about Jesus. The first full length of his life was St. Mark's Gospel, which was not written until about the year 70, some 40 years after his death. By that time, historical facts had been overlaid with mythical elements which expressed the meaning Jesus had acquired for his followers. It is this meaning that St. Mark primarily conveys rather than a reliable, straightforward portrayal. End quote. Now notice what she's saying. She is in effect saying that Mark is a liar, that what he wrote was mainly just myth and fables about Jesus. Very little in the Gospel of Mark is reliable information, she says. I contend that the myth is what Karen Armstrong herself conjured up out of her imagination with no evidence. What she wrote in this statement that I quoted is pure speculation. She has no evidence for anything that she said there. The fact is that some scholars suggest that Mark was written as early as sometime in the 50s AD. And we've already seen the testimony of Papias regarding Mark's gospel account. He said, quote, for of one thing he took a special care not to omit anything he had heard and not to put anything fictitious into the statements. Now, there were fictitious accounts of Jesus' life that came along, especially in the late first century and, second, and, and the second century, and they are full of fables and mythical things that are written down about Jesus. But there is a marked contrast between those mythical fable, fabled accounts of Jesus and what you find in the book of Mark or any of the other gospel accounts in the New Testament. The narratives of the New Testament were written by, as I said, eyewitnesses or people who were directly taught by eyewitnesses, and they were written much closer to the events they describe than the records of some other famous historical person, such as for example, Alexander the Great. The earliest extant biographies of Alexander the Great were written by Plutarch and Arian more than 400 years after he died, and yet those biographies are considered generally reliable by historians, and there are other similar examples that can be discussed. So 
by historical standards, the gospel accounts were written almost instantaneously after the events that they had occurred. Even if Mark's gospel had been written in the 70s, there were still plenty of people around who could have disputed his work if it had, it had been full of errors. Moreover, as I said earlier, there's a consistency in the overall teachings of the New Testament, including the Gospels. Mark wasn't the only Gospel account written. There were, as you might remember, three others independently written. Eyewitness testimony of the life, teachings of Jesus, and so forth. And there is consistency in the teachings of the New Testament throughout. Paul actually wrote some of the earliest books of the New Testament, and his writings reflect teachings and controversies taking place at the times the books were written. He was writing to real people in real time about real problems and events in the life of the church. The first epistle to the Corinthians was written perhaps around 56 AD. Some of the other books were written earlier. Paul wrote a summary of major doctrines concerning Jesus' divinity in 1 Corinthians. And he wrote concerning Jesus' divinity, his death and resurrection, things that had been taught and believed among the faithful from the very beginning of the church's existence. As he wrote in 1 Corinthians 15, beginning with verse 1, 1 Corinthians 15, verse 1, Moreover, brethren, I declare to you the gospel which I preached to you, which you also received and in which you stand, by which also you are saved, if you hold fast that word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you first of all that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he rose again the third day according to the scriptures, and that he was seen by Cephas, Cephas is another name for Peter, that he was seen by Cephas, then by the twelve. After that, he was seen by over 500 brethren at once, of whom the greater part remained to the present. So what he's saying is if you want to check this out, there are about 500 people around that can tell you they witnessed Jesus ascending into heaven after he had died and been resurrected. He said the greater part of these remain at present, but some have fallen asleep or in other words have died. After that, he was seen by James, then by all the apostles. Then last of all, he was seen by me also as by one born out of due time, for I am the least of the apostles who am not worthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. But I labored more abundantly than they all, yet not I, but the grace of God which was with me. Therefore, whether it is, whether it was I or they, so we preach and so you believed. What he's saying here is that his message was precisely the same as the message of the other apostles. These were things that were commonly believed and taught in the church. And this was the basis of their faith. This was the foundation of their faith. He even mentions the fact that he persecuted the church of God. 
when did he persecute the church of God? It was almost immediately after the church was established following Christ's death and resurrection. And it was only a, a year or two after after uh, after that those events that Paul was converted. So he was familiar with the church from the very beginning of the church's existence, although he was an adversary to begin with, later became an apostle. Paul confirms that he was teaching the same doctrine concerning Jesus, his death and resurrection that the other apostles taught, beliefs which were common in the church. And he wrote this in, in part of this uh, letter to the Corinthians he is addressing a heretical teaching denying the future resurrection of the faithful. That the resurrection occurred is a key to the development of the church in the first place. Without the resurrection, there wouldn't be any church, very likely. Had Jesus not been resurrected, it's likely the men that he had been with would have simply returned to their former occupations. But having been resurrected, Jesus bolstered their faith and gave them instructions. After his resurrection, he gave them instructions to take the gospel to the world and proclaim it to the world. We read in Matthew 28, beginning of verse 18, Jesus came and spoke to them. This was after the resurrection. He was speaking to his disciples, the ones who would be apostles. All authority has been given to me, he told them, in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Later, he appeared to the eleven as they Set at the table, we read in Mark 16, beginning with verse 14. This was after, again, after his resurrection. He appeared to the eleven as they sat at the table, and he rebuked their unbelief and hardness of heart because they did not believe those who had seen him after he had risen. When they were first, when the, when the uh, closest disciples of Jesus were first told that Jesus had been resurrected, they did not believe it. They didn't believe it until Jesus himself appeared to them. And when he did appear to them, he told them this. He said, go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. He who believes and is baptized will be saved, but he who does not believe will be condemned. From the beginning of their mission, the apostles understood that a key part of their message was to be the resurrection of Jesus Christ. In proposing a replacement among the twelve for Judas Iscariot, Peter said in Acts 1, beginning in verse 21, Acts 1 and verse 21, Therefore, of these men who have accompanied us all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John to that day when he was taken up from us, one of these must become a witness with us of his resurrection. This was the qualification that was being demanded for the man who was to replace Judas Iscariot as one of, one of the twelve. He was to be someone who had been with 
Jesus and the other apostles from the very time of Jesus' baptism by John the Baptist to the time he was taken up into heaven. And his job would be to a to become a witness with the other apostles of Jesus' resurrection. On the day of Pentecost, when the ministry of the New Testament church began, the apostles preached the resurrection. That was the core of their message. As we read in Acts 2 and verse 32, Acts 2 and verse 32, this Jesus God has raised up of which we are all witnesses, the apostles said. This Jesus, and they'd been explaining who they were talking about in the context, this Jesus God has raised up of which we are all witnesses. That was the message from the very beginning of the church that Jesus had been resurrected. This was being preached in the temple of Jerusalem. They knew what had happened to, to the man called Jesus who was believed to be the Christ by his followers. The conviction that Jesus was who he said he was and whom they believed him to be, the Messiah, the Son of God, resurrected and glorified and their Savior who, who has the power to grant eternal life to the faithful motivated the apostles to give their lives for the sake of the gospel, for the sake of the message that they had been commissioned to proclaim. And they suffered persecution, privation, and martyrdom to proclaim the message of the gospel. One does not do that lightly, especially if he is proclaiming something he knows to be a lie. They were eyewitnesses. They knew what they had seen and heard and handled. Even historical sources outside the Bible, including the Jewish historian Josephus and the Roman historian Tacitus, attest to the rapid spread of Christianity in the first century. Now we don't have time in this sermon to go into the many prophecies of the Old Testament concerning the birth, the life, the death, the resurrection of the Messiah. But there are many of those prophecies and there is no other person on earth or in history who is a credible candidate for having fulfilled these prophecies to the letter. We read in Acts chapter 8, and this is something that at least in the critics that I've read, and I've read uh, quite a few of the uh, statements of critics of the Scriptures in the New Testament, but they seldom, if ever, even mention the prophecies that were fulfilled in the life of Jesus Christ, prophecies from the Old Testament, very specific, detailed prophecies. Why don't they mention them? Because if they did, it's likely they would, their arguments would fall apart immediately. In Acts chapter 8, verse 26, we read about a man named Philip who had been ordained a deacon. Later he was an evangelist in the church. But we read in verse 26, an angel of the Lord spoke to Philip saying, Arise and go toward the south along the road which goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza, this is desert. So he arose and went. Behold, a man of Ethiopia, a eunuch of great authority, 
under Candace, the queen of the Ethiopians, who had charge of all her treasury and had come to Jerusalem to worship. So this was a, an Ethiopian, but a man who had become a uh, proselyte, a Jewish proselyte, and he had gone to Jerusalem to keep the Feast of uh, Unleavened Bread, evidently, or uh, one of the feasts, whichever one it was. But anyway, he was returning and sitting in his chariot, and he was reading Isaiah the prophet. Then the Spirit said to Philip, Go near and overtake this chariot. So Philip ran to him and heard him reading the prophet Isaiah and said, Do you understand what you are reading? And he said, How can I unless someone guides me? And he asked Philip to come up and sit with him. The place in the scripture which he read was this. He was led as a sheep to the slaughter and as a lamb before his shear is silent. So he opened not his mouth. In his humiliation, his justice was taken away. And who will declare his generation? For his life is taken from the earth. So the eunuch answered Philip and said, I ask you, of whom does this prophet say this? Of himself or some other man? Then Philip opened his mouth and beginning at this scripture, preached Jesus to him. So notice how Philip went about convincing this man that Jesus was the Messiah. He explained to him from the prophecies of the Old Testament how Jesus had fulfilled those various prophecies. Many attacks have been made on the integrity of the New Testament, but no criticisms or attacks have been lodged that cannot be answered satisfactorily. The evidence that we've discussed today supporting the integrity of Scripture has just begun to scratch the surface. Studying the evidence in favor of the testimony of the New Testament has strengthened the faith of many in the integrity of its message, and it can do the same for you.